So we're in our family series we have today and then next week, and that'll kind of wrap this whole thing up as we've been walking through the Ten Commandments. But let's see how well you've been doing. We have made it through five of the Ten Commandments, and let's see how well you remember these. The goal has been to not just know them, not just remember them, but to to look at God's word, and he calls them instructions, and to really apply the Ten Commandments to our lives and into our family context, whatever that might be. So number one, the first commandment is... Nice job. You've been doing your homework. No other gods. Good. Number two, make no idols. Good. And the key word there is do not make idols. Instead of putting our trust and control into things we can control, we put our trust in God. So don't make idols. Keywords there. Make. The third one, third commandment, do not misuse God's name. Excellent. And the key here is how we talk about God, we speak God. Is God's name meaningful in the life of our family and how we talk about him? Fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. Good, keep the Sabbath. And what's holy mean? Set apart, yes. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Idea there is you have six ordinary days to get your ordinary work done, but then we have this one day, this special day, this day that has been set apart to spend and rest and to uh, focus on God, to be together as a family. So keep the Sabbath day holy. And then number five, the fifth commandment we talked last week is, nice job, honor dad and mom. What's honor mean? Value, yes, adding value, adding weight, but we won't tell you to add weight to people. So we say add value to people. We want to add value. And as we've seen the progression, as we've gone through these commandments, the first four deal with us and God, our duties to God. When we hit the fifth one last week, it all of a sudden turned the corner, and now we're talking about how we interact and how we relate and how we behave and act towards other people. We start to move into our horizontal relationships, and that continues throughout the rest of these commandments. So now we move on to number six and number seven. Anybody know number six and number seven? If you don't, that's okay. That's why you came to church today. All right, let's look at it. Head to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. It's where we find the Ten Commandments. Two short verses, we're gonna look at two commandments. They seem like they're to the point, but we're gonna spend a good amount of time unpacking these. Here we go. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You must not commit murder. You must not commit adultery. So number six is don't what? Don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Now, you, you may be thinking, Brian, I, I, I get that. I understand that those are both wrong. You're really going to preach 30 minutes on both of these. Yes, I am. Here's why. Here's why. It seems like they're pretty cut and dry. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Good. That's all I need to know, right? But here's the thing. Is in our families, the root of what causes us to get close to this line or maybe even crossing the line into these is, is really rooted in our lack of self-control. Both of these speak to our lack of self-control, specifically to our emotions and our desires. That's why it's so difficult in our families. We, we may not totally cross the line with these and officially break them, but man, we often get very, very close because it's dealing with not just an action in that moment, but what God is saying through these commands is, what about the, the issues leading up to it? What about the times and the moments 
leading up to when it officially happens. It's looking at a lack of self-control, specifically here, a lack of self-control with our emotions and our desires. Often we, we either say this or you hear it said, well, I don't know how that happened. I, I didn't mean for it to happen. I don't know how I ended up here. Because most people, there's exceptions on either end of the extremes, but most people don't just wake up and say, I'm going to commit murder today. That's on my to-do list. Most people wouldn't wake up and say, yep, today's going to be my day to commit adultery. I, I, I'm, I'm just decided today I'm going to do that. No, it is, a, it is a process that has led people there. We don't just wake up and decide. It has been time over time, over time, a lack of self-control leading us to a point where then the destruction finally happens. Proverbs talks about it in this way. Proverbs 25, 28 says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. A person that lacks self-control, a person without self-control is like a city that has no defensive walls, that these walls are broken down. When we lack self-control, it's like we are completely defenseless against the attacks of life and others, the toxic relationships that would cause our, our family to start to be ripped apart and, and set apart. And it all goes back to, do we have self-control in our family or do we not? A lack of self-control is like a city with broken down walls and we become very defenseless, which is the root of what gets us to these two. Now, what we like to have are lines. We like to have clear boundaries. And in essence, that's exactly what the Ten Commandments are. They are God's set of rules. They are his instructions. If you read the first part of Exodus 20, he calls them instructions, but they are boundaries for us so that we know what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. It's right, what's wrong. And it helps us know when we get close to the line. As a dad with young kids, I'm constantly telling them, we don't cross certain lines. There's this part of the street you don't cross. If you see a fence, we don't jump over the fence. There's a reason we have lines and God has given us these lines, these as we go through next week, these 10 lines that he says, don't cross these. These are your boundaries. Don't go past them. But what we love to do, and we are very, very good at this, is we see the lines. Okay, I get it. I'm not supposed to murder and I'm not supposed to commit adultery. Got it. Let's see how close I can get. And man, we get right up on that line. I'm not touching it, but I got a really good view of it. I, well, just, I just touched it just for a second, but I'm back. And, and we just walk this line as best as we possibly can. And we feel like our family's good. We feel like even we're fine. It's like, I've kept the Ten Commandments. I have not officially crossed the line. And what God is going to help us understand is the line is there, yes, for a pur purpose as we're going to see, but the dysfunction that creeps into our family doesn't just show up automatically when you get here. The dysfunction of our family begins way over here when we begin to have a lack of self-control and we say, okay, I see the line. I know I'm not going to cross the line, but I'm just going to take this step right here. Now, I'm not at the line yet, and I'm definitely not going to kill my wife. I'm not going to kill my kids. I might think about it, but I might say some things. I'm not going to ever, like, really commit adultery, but I can look for a minute. And we take these steps towards the line, and this is where dysfunction breeds. This is where dysfunction begins to get a grip on not just in our own lives and in our work context and in our community context. This is where dysfunction begins to breed in the context of our family. Jesus speaks to this, where there's this line, but then there's this other area. And as you can see, he's going to call it, this is a very dangerous place to be as we take steps closer to the line. Because what had happened is God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments through Moses, and they said, got it. We see the lines, we see the boundaries, we won't touch them. We're going to get really close. 
And the, the Israelites would get very, very close. They would cross the line sometimes and God have to punish them. They'd walk up close to the line and they'd have to be reminded to take some steps back. But they missed the point of why God gave them the law. So Jesus comes on the scene. Look at this, Matthew chapter five. Jesus helps remind people why we have these lines and how we are to interact with them, also known as God's commands. Matthew 5. Verse 17 says, don't misunderstand why I have come, Jesus said. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called what? great in the kingdom of heaven. So what we see is here's us with the line that Jesus is not taking down. Duct tape will fix anything. And in these moments, we like to just have, have our line so we can get close to it, but we know exactly what not to cross. And Jesus says, no, I, I've come so that, yes, you know the lines, but that it actually, its purpose is fulfilled. It's full purpose. He said, you've been getting close to the line, but you've missed the whole point. And he said, you got to know them. You got to remember them. You got to teach them so that you can be called great. We said this, this whole series that perfect families don't exist. We, we're not going to obtain a perfect family, but we most certainly can be great. Great families happen only by choice. And as it says here, anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now he goes on because what Jesus does is he kind of gives, hey, the law is important right? The law is important, and you guys have started to miss the point of the sixth and the seventh commandment. So just a couple verses down, he clarifies both of these commandments. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. And if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So Jesus says, you all know this one, right? Israelites, you remember when God told Moses to tell you don't kill each other? You remember that one? We all know that one. You know that one. I know that one. But look what Jesus says in verse 22. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, uh-oh, many of us need to, this morning was already pretty rough, wasn't it? If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger, circle the word danger there, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in what? Danger, circle danger again, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus is talking about these steps that we're taking. The line is don't murder, don't commit adultery. But what Jesus is saying, he says, but I tell you, yes, don't cross that line, but the issue starts way back here, guys. The lack of self-control where we begin to say things, we begin to act on some things. They're small steps towards the line. And Jesus says, you are in a very dangerous place. You may not be there yet and technically know you haven't crossed the line and technically speaking, you haven't broken the commandments, but you are on a, a course that is going to lead to destruction sooner rather than later. You are in a very dangerous place because of the steps that you begin to take. A couple verses down, verse 27, he then speaks to the seventh commandment. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. You know it, I know it, we all know it. But I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Same concept. I haven't done anything technically wrong. I haven't crossed the line. But Jesus is saying, where's your heart at? Because you're getting awfully close. No, you haven't crossed over, but you're in a very dangerous place. 
So what I hope we begin to see is, is not have we or have we not crossed the line, but where are we currently at? Are we taking steps in that direction or are we taking steps in the direction that lead us closer to him? When we take these steps, we become very vulnerable. Remember what Proverbs told us? This is a realm of, that's lacking self-control. Every step that we take towards the line is saying, oh, I, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to control my emotions or my desires, so I'm going to go this direction. And we're like a city that has broken down walls, and we're in a very vulnerable, defenseless state, and it's a very dangerous place. And what tends to happen is we think, well, I'll be able to control it when I get to the, when I get to the line. I'll just keep making these decisions. I'll do what I want to do and I'll take steps this direction. And then when I get here, I'll be able to stop. We would like to think that, but the problem is if we didn't have self-control way back there, what's to actually say that the self-control is going to magically show up right here? When we live all of these steps that are lacking self-control, we will eventually cross the line because it escalates. Our lack of self-control will continue to escalate. Fights are like that. Right? You start fighting over something that's relatively meaningless and pointless. I'll tell you, uh, for my wife and I, when we were first married, we had probably one of our largest fights over this, a towel. Let, don't judge me. You've had the same thing. Here's, what's happen here's what happened all those years ago. So I wanted to be this helpful husband, right? Not like all those other husbands that don't help with the laundry. I wanted to be a helpful husband. And so I go into the laundry and I pull out a towel. I said, I'm going to fold the towels and help Becky out. She just got done working. I'm going to fold the towels. So everybody knows how to fold a towel, right? So I'll teach you. Here's what you do. You take these sides and you cross them over just like so. And then I do them in threes, sort of. You see the problem, don't you? And I looked up at my wife and said, I folded the towels and I started putting the towels away. She said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? I said, I'm folding the towels. I'm being an awesome husband. Kudos to me. She says, yeah, that is not how you fold towels. I said, it's a towel, honey. That's how you fold towels. She says, well, that's not how I want you to fold the towels. I said, who are you to tell me how to fold a towel? It's my towel. And then it just started to ask her. She's like, well, I don't want you to help anymore. What do you mean you don't want me to help? She's like, I want you to help, but I want you to help the way I want you to help. I want you to fold the towels the way I want you to fold the towels. I was like, I can't believe we're arguing about this. And I just started to blow up. I had a loss of my emotions. I couldn't believe that she was telling me how to fold my own towel. So I said, fine, you don't want me to help? I'm never gonna help again. And it just got way out of control until she finally said what only wives can do. She said, Brian, think about what you're saying. I don't wanna think about what I'm saying. <laughs> but when you say, hey, we just had this blowout, drag out fight over a towel, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Of course it does, but we do that. We have these small things. A friend of mine, him and his wife, their biggest fight is over cell phone chargers. He forgets his, takes hers, she gets mad, takes it back, and just the family blows up. We fight over things, and because of a lack of control of our emotions and our desires, we begin to move in this direction. Now, I'm not saying I was close to killing my wife. I was a few steps from it. <laughs> but when I say out loud, Brian... You were upset and saying hurtful things because of how you were choosing to fold a towel and that you weren't willing to learn from your wife on how she wants you to fold the towel. Brian, you're an idiot. That just doesn't compute. But what happens is we lose control. And when we lose control, it is very difficult to get it back. Truly what happens when control is lost, especially when you're talking about uh, relationships where there's two or more people involved in this conflict, what happens is when one loses control, and another loses control, it will continue to escalate until someone 
takes control back. In this case, thank goodness it was Becky, and she's always the smarter, wiser one out of any of us, and more mature. And she'll say, hang on a second, look at what's happened here. And it takes somebody to gain control to then put control back into the environment. And instead of taking steps this way that are lack of control, you take steps and you gain control back. So it doesn't escalate. So when we say, well, I'll be fine until I get to the line and then I'll stop there. No, no, it will continue to escalate. Maybe not immediately, but at some point that line will get crossed because we have chosen a life of lacking self-control. We're not going to get it back when we're standing right at the line. So here's what I want us to do. Um, if, if you've been in the sports realm, if you grew up playing sports or anything, you know that a good chunk of your week leading up to the next game or your next opponent, your next match, you spend a good amount of time watching film critiquing yourself. You watch, and oh, I would do that differently. That play, we messed up on this side. So that self-evaluation helps out a ton. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of watch film, so to speak. We're going to watch um, play by play the first murder that ever happened in Scripture. And I want us to pick apart play by play. Because what we're going to see is not just how it ends, but I want you to see how it got to that point. The best thing that we could do as we read through God's word here in a minute is as we recognize where we're at, most of us may realize, man, we are in a very dangerous spot. We've been taking these steps towards the line. We have not been taking control, but we have had a lack of self-control, but we have the time to course correct. We, we recognize that, man, we are on the path to destruction, but, man, we can adjust it. That's what I want you to pick apart and see as we're going through this. So look with me, Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start in the last part of verse 2. And this is the story of Cain and Abel. They're brothers. Many of you may know the story. Cain and Abel, Cain was the older one, ended up killing, murdering his younger brother. So he all the way crossed the line. He broke the sixth commandment. He murdered his younger brother. But again, I want you to see what, it, what actually caused them to get to this point. So here we go. Last part of verse two. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So they, two different individuals having two different, two different jobs, but in the same family. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very what? Angry. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now God's not playing favorites here. And honestly, God doesn't really care about the actual stuff that's being offered. Abel's bringing an offering and Cain's bringing an offering. The issue that God has, the reason why Abel's offering and he was looked on with favor and Cain was not, is because of their position of their heart, where their heart is at. If you look at what Abel brought, look at it again. It says, Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So Abel brought the best. He had some of his flock and he said, God, I'm going to give you my very best, some of the fat from the firstborns. The best that I possibly have, God, I'm going to bring you. Now, Cain also brought an offering, but if you look at the scripture, it says that he brought some of the fruits. He didn't bring the best. He brought some of them. And again, it's not an issue with the offering. It's an issue of their heart. We know where Abel's heart was. God, I'm going to give you my very best. Cain's heart is in a different place. And he was upset. His response was he became very angry. Now, this could have all been solved is in this moment when God said, Abel, Kudos, thank you for where your heart's at, thank you. Cain, not so much. Instead of getting angry immediately, if Cain would have stopped and looked at his heart, had a heart check, he would have seen, man, my heart's not in the right place. So often, when we start moving in this direction, we fail to notice the condition of our heart. 
And over the course of time, we're going to see how this plays out. Cain murders his brother Abel, and you can trace it all the way back to this moment where Cain had a heart, had a heart issue, and he refused to look and take ownership of his heart issue. Psalm 139, at the very end of the chapter, says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the way of everlasting life. It's a promise that gives God permission to seek out our heart and to show us the condition of our heart and our families. Before we start moving down any road, what if we stopped and reflected on me before responding to anyone else? Here, Cain is quick to respond. I'm just mad. Instead of saying, well, let me look at me for a second. Maybe I'm part of the problem here. So we've got to, before we, before we just dive on in to what we say and what we do, we take a moment and we say, what's my heart like? We have a heart checkup. And the best thing for us to say in our families especially is, okay, I need to reflect on me. Look at me first before I ever try to respond to anyone or anything around me. Cain failed to do so. But we can still course correct by looking at us and reflecting before we respond. By the way, uh, this excuse that led him here, if you look back, it said that he, he wanted to have God's favor. It says that, uh, verse 5, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. So he was angry because God didn't have favor on him in this situation. Cain expected to have God's favor. Cain thought he deserved God's favor. And he didn't get what he wanted and he didn't get what he thought he deserved. And so therefore he responded when he was angry. That's the exact same excuse that leads down this road as well. Well, I didn't get what I wanted. Well, I thought I deserved more. I wanted, I thought, I expected. And instead of reflecting on our heart, we begin to respond that leads us down these roads. Both of these excuses are the exact same because it deals at the root with a lack of self-control with our emotions and our desires. Verse six. So he's all mad about this event that happened. Verse six. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. See, God gives Cain the fix. He says, why are you so angry? If you, if you do what's right, no problem. If you do what's wrong, there's going to be problems. So Cain, just do what's right. Change. God lays out, here's the outcome. Here's what's going to happen. And he tells him how to fix it. He also gives Cain a very big reality check. He said, Cain, you need to know where you're at right now. You're in a dangerous place. Just like Jesus was saying, you're in a very dangerous place. You're angry. Your heart's not in the right place. And you keep taking steps toward this line. Cain, watch out because the language here is sin is crouching out your door. It's right there. You're getting awfully close to that line. And it desires to have you. You were drawn to do these things. If, these, if we weren't drawn to any of those, then why even have a line? It wouldn't be an issue. But we are. Because of our, our sinful nature, we are drawn to sin. We're drawn to crossing the line. And God's saying, you're right there, Cain. Be careful. And then he tells them how to fix it. Look at that, word, that phrase. You must rule over it. You must rule over it. It's on you, Cain. None of this, well, that's just how I'm wired it's my personality. I'm just bent that way. I didn't mean to. I'm not sure how it exactly happened. There's no excuses. God's saying, no, you own it. 
you rule over it. Sure, it's a strong desire. Sure, you're upset. Sure, your emotions and desires are getting out of control, but you must rule over it. You must rule over it. And Cain's had a very crucial decision here. The decision he makes is going to lead him in one of two directions. Continue on the path towards destruction, or he can course correct and begin to save the relationship. I want you to see this here. Thanks to our Ohio State coach, Urban Meyer, whether you're an Ohio State fan or not, genius man and coach. Here's, a, I'm from Ohio, by the way, so I can say these things. This is not part of the Ten Commandments, so I'll draw a line so you don't confuse the two. But he uses this equation with his football team. In fact, they wear it, uh, a lot of them wear it on their wrist as a reminder. He gives them the equation E plus R equals O. And he reminds his football team every single weekend that you have zero control over the E and the O. The E is the event. Whatever happens, you don't control that. It happened. Life happened. In football, things happen. Plays don't go right. The other team's surprised. Whatever the case may be, you cannot control the event. The outcome is also out of our control. We can try our very best to make the outcome what we want, but at the end of the day, the cards are going to fall as they may, and the outcome is out of our control. So we can't control the event, we can't control the outcome, but the only thing in this entire equation that we can control is the R, which is our response. How we respond to the event, how we respond to have a hopeful outcome, the R, the response, is the only thing that we truly can control. And that's what God is telling Cain. He's like, you're in a very dangerous place. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, so here's your choice. You rule over it or it overrules you. Which is it going to be? And in our families, especially in our families and even in our workplace, I mean, we tend to blow by this. Well, I can't believe this happened and I can't do anything about it, so whatever. And we still have a choice here. How we respond, how we respond is crucial, especially in the life of our family. Are we going to continue down the path of destruction or are we going to begin to save it? Verse 8, now Cain, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So he made his choice. He made his decision, his response that led to Cain ultimately killing his brother Abel. But I want you to see the, the, the two other steps that happened right before this. So right before Cain killed his brother Abel, what, what happened? What did Cain do? Right before. Put it, you can put the scripture back up there. You can cheat. What did he do? Right before he killed him, he did what? He attacked him. So he got right up to the line. I've not killed him yet. I'm going to beat him up, but I haven't killed him yet. Take one more step. What happened right before he attacked his brother? What did he say to him? Let's go to the field. Now, here's the problem there. Is he hasn't done anything wrong. Hey, let's go to the field together. Just me and you. We don't need anybody else around us. There's nothing wrong with that except that it's leading him towards the line. He has put himself and his brother in a position, in an environment, in a situation that most likely is going to lead, which it ends up obviously leading him across the line. God tried to show Cain, you need to be aware. You're in a dangerous spot. But Cain refused to be aware of his surroundings and aware of the environments that he was going to put himself in. That's why self-awareness is a key in self-control. You need to know yourself. You need to know your family. You need to know your environments well enough to know if I continue in this environment, is it going to go this way or is it going to go this way? I know the buttons to push to get my wife all upset. I know those buttons. 
You live with somebody long enough, you start to get their rhythms and, and you know their buttons. And so I have to be self-aware that I'm not intentionally pushing those buttons just to cause conflict. I know my own faults. I know my own flaws. I know my weaknesses. And so it's important that I stay so, so self-aware that I don't have certain relationships because I know where it's probably going to lead. That I don't do and be in certain areas because I know where it's probably going to lead. You have to be so self-aware that you know that the environment you put yourself in is not going to continue to lead you in this direction. And it started out with, let's just go to the field. And it was on his turf, and it's through him being angry, and it led to murder. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? God says, where's Abel? And, and his response, Cain's response, is the same response I get from my four-year-old. Connor, what? What happened to that big scratch on your brother's face? I don't know. How did your toothbrush end up in the toilet? I don't know. If you have teenagers, what happened to the car? I don't know. It was like that when I picked it up. No, it wasn't. That's our, that's, that tends to be our default response. I don't know. I had nothing to do with it. How am I supposed to know? What's sad, not just the loss of, of his brother here, but what's sad about Cain's story is according to scripture, we have no record of him ever owning and admitting what he did was wrong. Not once. He says, I don't know. It's not my problem. He never owns it. He never admits it. And he never asks for forgiveness. Ever. He crossed the line and he never sought to come back over. Because it was a life and steps and it was an unfortunate progression of a lack of self-control that ended in eventually crossing the line. So here's how it ends. Verse 12. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Here's the, here's the punishment. Verse 12. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. The New Living Translation there, instead of restless wanderer, translates that phrase to homeless wanderer. And that's what Cain did. Because of his lack of self-control that started with a heart issue way over here, continued to take steps, refused to respond in the right way, refused to look at his heart, refused to become aware of his surroundings and ended up crossing the line. And he destroyed his family in the process. A homeless wanderer. That's what happens when we allow the lack of self-control to seep into ourselves and into our family. Remember, dysfunction doesn't happen when you cross the line. Dysfunction begins in this dangerous area leading up to it. And it's all because it's rooted in a lack of self-control, a lack of self-control with our emotions, a lack of self-control with our desires. Men, let me just heart-to-heart -heart talk to you for a second. It's, it's, we, we're called husbands because it's our job to lead our family. And yes, it takes two to fight, and, and I get all that, but you be the one that takes control first. Not by force. You take control. You gain your self-control over your emotions and your desires first. And you lead your wife and you lead your kids back towards God with you. We cannot continue to use these excuses, anyone, 
that's just how I'm wired. It's just my personality. It's just how I respond to things. I'm just short-tempered. I just, I'm just, well, God made me a visual person. I can't help it. You must rule over it. So I pray that you're starting to get an idea of where, where you would say you are at with you and your family. You know, where's your heart? You know, are you reflecting on you before you start reacting and responding? Are you able to kind of see the environments that you're in? Are you able to see where the path is leading, this, this path of lacking self-control? And what I would say, and what we're going to see here in Romans is, no matter where we find ourselves, and no matter if we have or haven't crossed the line, or how many times we've crossed the line, look at what Paul says here in Romans. Romans 5 verse 20. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Isn't that great news? That's why what we've been studying over the last month, the Ten Commandments, are there just so we know how wrong we are. <laughs> God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you catch what Paul's saying here? He's like, you have the law, so you know you're wrong. You know where the line is. That's a good thing. He said, but as we sin, as we make our mistakes, as we lose control, God's grace is greater. Where sin grew, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became even greater. God's wonderful grace increased all the more. So no matter how many times we walk to the line, no matter how long we've lived here, the times we've crossed it, the times we haven't, God's grace is greater. If you think, man, I've got a broken family because, man, we have been living in this area, that's probably very true because dysfunction breeds in here, right? But a broken family is not a hopeless family. A broken family just needs to be rebuilt. And the great news, the greatest news you're going to hear this morning is God's in the business of rebuilding. He reconciles, he restores, he rebuilds, he changes us in our hearts. We can never get so far that his grace can't reach us back. We can never get so far that God's grace could not reach us and pull us back. Because where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. So my prayer is, that this would not just be a, okay, I get it. I'm not supposed to murder. I'm not supposed to commit adultery. Stay away from the line. Got it, Brian. Did you really need 35 minutes to say all that? That's my fear. And so my hope is that today would be a, a marker for you, for your family, for your marriage, for the relationship with your kids. A marker that no longer are you defined by the faults and flaws and mistakes, but by God's grace, because God's grace is greater. So here's what I want to give you an opportunity to do. And we don't do stuff like this a lot. And um, for many of you, this is very uncomfortable, awkward. And um, I get all that. But I'm more concerned that you would walk out of here just letting this message from God's word just stay in your head and never sink down to your heart. So what, what I'm going to give you an opportunity to do is the Blyes, Ryan, and Savannah Bly are over here. Raise your hands so you see them. There are life group coordinators and there are also our marriage coaches. And then I'm going to be standing over on that opposite side, my left, your right. And Sean and the band, they're going to lead us through one more song. 
and I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to sing, and we're going to worship and, and just declare our love for him. But I know that there's going to be many of you that just need to hit the reset on your family and on your life. Remember, there's no perfect families, but we can be a great family. Great because we are defined by God's great grace and nothing else. So we just want to have the opportunity to pray over you. You can be as specific or as general as you want to be. We're not going to pry. But I don't want you to walk out of here and just say, well, let's just keep doing what we're doing. There's power in prayer. There's power in making the effort to move out of a middle section of a theater and say, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, sorry, excuse me, can I get through all the way and then walk down or walk up a staircase to say, would you pray for me? Let today be the day that this changes. And let's not end up like Cain because he just wanted to keep doing what he always wanted to do. Let God begin to rebuild your marriage because of his grace. Where sin increased, God's grace is greater. So I'm going to pray, and I'll have you all stand. And anybody that would like us to just pray over you. And like I said, whether you're, as a family, you want to come and let us pray over you. Whether it's just you and your, your spouse coming hand in hand, just saying, man, we're not in a good spot. Whether it's just you individually, just, man, I'm struggling. I've been living this this lack of self-control life for so long, I don't know how to gain it back. What, or just say, I just want you to pray for me. Wherever you're at, I'm gonna invite you to come and meet us on the side so that we can pray for you. And we can see God do a miracle because of his grace in your life and in your family's life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done for us. That you've given us the, the awareness of where the line is at and, and where we fall short. But you don't leave it there. You, you say, but grace is greater. So God, regardless of what we have been experiencing, regardless of what our family has gone through, regardless of what we have pulled our family through, regardless of the state of our family, regardless of the brokenness of our family, regardless of the dysfunction that has taken grip on our families, regardless of the self-control that we have had or not had over the course of however many years, and we don't see how it could possibly change. God, your grace is greater and may today mark our families where grace ruled. And we ruled over our desires and we ruled over our emotions. And no longer do we take steps in the direction away from you. Reconcile us, restore us, rebuild us because of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.